0: Welcome everybody to another edition of This Week in Doom. Joining me, as always, bringing the Doom is the Green Chicken himself, Doomberg. Hi mate,
1: Grant Williams. How are you? Uh, where in the world do you find yourself today? Uh, we we have a game uh, in the chicken coop here, where's uh, which is um, you know where in the world is Grant Williams? We we pull up our map every time we talk to you, and we try to put a pin on on where you are. So I,
0: I, I don't think I know anymore. I'm so upside down with all the all the travel and the jet lag and God knows what. I, I, I don't think I know. So if you if you find out, you, you'll tell me, right? yeah uh. <laughs> <laughs> so mate listen um we have a guest joining us shortly but before we get to that i'm curious to talk to you because you and i haven't really had a chance to speak because of all my travel about uh the launch of doomberg the official launch which we we spoke about last time and I'm, I'm dying to hear how it's gone from from a very uh selfish perspective because i i know that journey i know what it's like and i'm curious to, to hear experience with it it's um
1: it's not, a, it's not an exaggeration to say that it is simultaneously the most thrilling and humbling experience of our lives, um, really, truly forever indebted to, to you for your support. But um, we're one month in, and the response has been um, overwhelming. We're um, already in the top three paid finance substacks in the world, which is amazing, considering that we've only published one piece behind the paywall right. um, just, just, just a few days ago. And um, really grateful to you and grateful to our readers and our subscribers and to the listeners of this podcast that crossed over and subscribed and re- really grateful to Substack as a platform. Um, we were talking before we started recording that this really represents personal sovereignty. You know, we, we, we do what we love and um, there's enough of a market for it. We've earned the business from enough people such that um, this could theoretically be the only thing we do and uh, what a gift that is. And so we couldn't be more grateful couldn't be more thrilled. Um, it's really almost unbelievable. Um, it's the one year anniversary of publishing our first piece um, as we're recording this. And it's a pretty amazing journey. And uh, we might write a book about it someday. It's just, it's just been so fun, but it really shows you the potential in this new media world. Um, if you can sort of plan things correctly and execute with discipline and have a solid team and, and network of supporters around you, just what's possible. So. I, it's it's really appreciate the opportunity to answer that question, but it, it's been a whirlwind. And as you know, having gone through it yourself, it's also tiring and a mountain of work and, you know, um, frustrations and thrills and wins and losses. And uh, we've experienced all of it. Wouldn't trade a second of it um, and um, couldn't be more grateful.
0: Well, you know, it's it's funny. I, I wanted people to get a chance to hear that because I, I think so many people have followed your journey, both people who have become avid readers of your work, but also, and one of the main reasons for doing this podcast, you and I, was to help people trying to take that journey and, and help a get them some exposure to an audience that, that is curious to find out new perspectives, new ideas, but also for them to try and follow your journey and get a sense of how to make a business out of creating great content. It, it's not a straightforward thing to do. Uh, no,
1: content is... Um... Is barely one of five pillars, which is the, the strategy that we've implemented from the start in developing Doomberg. Um It's it's absolutely necessary that you create as good a content as you can create, um, but that is so far from sufficient to make a business out of it um, that 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 lack of realization of just how much the other four pillars come into play is the is the genesis of the downfall of. of most people who make a crack at doing this but don't ultimately succeed. And as you know, we've we've tried to be as open and generous and authentic about this as possible. And we, uh, you know, modeling your behavior, have tried to help as many fellow content creators as possible. The market for, you know, distributed education and entertainment is exploding. And um, playing a positive sum game is, is both just a better way to live and also um, we think ultimately um, the way to optimize value because you just create this this network of, Fellow content creators that you can count on as friends, that you could count on for support, and yeah. and creating this podcast, you know, this week in doom is, is really the the ultimate sort of manifestation of that strategy. We're bringing on people that are brilliant, that are trying to create content and and and, and create a business out of it. In some cases, or or in the case of the guests that really outstanding guests we're about to have on, to um, use the content creation strategy for deeply personal uh, advocacy that they're that they're very passionate about.
0: Yeah, this, um, this, this week's episode is, uh, is one we both, you and I, have been looking forward to for quite some time now. And our guest has just a fantastic story, which we'll, we'll get him to tell us. But what, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about Chris Kiefer?
1: Yeah, very excited to bring Dr. Chris Kiefer onto the platform. And, and when you and I were first collaborating, you know, about what this podcast might be, really, Chris is kind of the quintessential guest. Um, Chris, Dr. Chris Kiefer is a medical doctor who is basically become one of the most impactful and highest profile pro nuclear energy advocates in the world, um, but especially in Canada, which is his home country, and um, you know, starting from nothing but a passion and some some strong opinions and ideas, layered over with a, a continuous improvement mindset. Uh, Chris has really made substantial inroads to affecting policy in ways that uh, he believes are proper and and to the benefit of, of both the planet, the environment, uh, and 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 people that live on it, and so really thrilled to have him on and as our audience will hear um you know this, this guy didn't disappoint he brought the goods and it's a really fantastic discussion
0: yeah it really is um no, i think the best thing for us to do is to uh, is to get into that so why don't we uh, welcome dr Kiefer to the podcast
1: dr chris Kiefer, welcome to this week in doom really really great that you could join us it's,
2: it's fun to be on on this side of the microphone as as a guest it's, it's an honor to be on the show
1: Yes, we know each other quite well off air, and we were just chatting with Grant before we got started about how much fun it is to interview a podcast host because they, they know the routine and uh, they'd usually show up ready to go. And no difference here. You, you host a wonderful podcast called Decouple, which we'll get into later. But before we dive in, you have a really remarkable bio and an interesting path to where you find yourself today. Why don't you give our listeners uh, a brief overview of, of your journey in life, uh, your views on, on the environment, and, and how you? ended up becoming such a passionate supporter and proponent of nuclear energy.
2: Sure, I mean I will try and keep it brief but but there's a lot to unpack. Um, you know, I I guess I would define myself now as as within sort of the eco-modernist school of environmentalism. Um, I've always primarily been been a humanist but you know, I've cared a lot about the environment. Um, I was a little socially awkward as a kid and spent most of my time in uh, the forest and wood lot uh behind my house. And I, I have an interesting kind of trajectory um, almost through the sort of stages of, of, uh, human technological innovation and, and evolution. I, um, my, my like early politics as a teenager, um, you know, naive as they were, were almost like a neo-Levite. Like I thought that, um, that social stratification was kind of the root of all evil, you know, I as I, was, I guess, kind of growing up in a bit of a Marxist household. And I was like, well, what drives, you know, that kind of, um, hierarchical social relations? Well, it's, technology, right? So we need to go back to the very basics, like hunter gatherer society, when everyone can sort of build the basic toolkit. And, uh, I was a bit of a survivalist again, a bit socially awkward. So I love being out in the woods. I learned to make fire with sticks, literally with a bow drill fire. Um, you know, got a job as a survival instructor, um, and then a whitewater canoe guide, and then ended up in the Yukon actually really living that sort of romance of, you know, living off the fat of the land. Um, I worked as a, a, hunter trapper, um, and then as a horse wrangler and hunting guide in the Yukon. And I went up there sort of with this idea that I was going to, you know, learn from a you know elderly native man and, and, you know, gain these, these skills, a total kind of eco-romantic fantasy. I ended up learning how to hunt from, from a native guy, but in a radically different circumstance, um, you know, working for big game hunting outfit, um anyway to make it brief I went on um got into medicine um kind of got my shit together um I started studying a little bit of anthropology and things like that early on no shame on that discipline but I really wanted a um a hard skill uh, that I could offer in the world uh, so uh, managed to fight my way through uh, pre med and, and medicine and when I finished my fellowship, I continued the eco romantic journey I, I pursued through the agricultural revolution and started a uh, sort of permaculture intentional community um, that was very grounded in ideas of trying to find ways to, uh, you know, for for non indigenous people to relate to indigenous people. So it was on the border of, of Canada's largest indigenous reserve. And then now I've sort of fast forwarded through the agricultural revolution. Intentional communities basically, on average, only ever last about two years, um, and so I've I've kind of evolved into a very innovation focused uh, eco modernist. So it's it's been an interesting sort of. Uh, I guess, um, you know, 200,000 years of, of human technological evolution for me. And and now I'm, uh, I guess, one of Canada's foremost advocates uh, for, for nuclear energy of all things. So uh, I know that was not brief, but uh, that's that's a little bit of a, a bizarre intro into, into who I am.
0: You know, it could have made that an awful lot longer. That was extremely brief. There are so many uh, interesting diversions along the way there. It's fascinating. Um, what I'd love to ask, I'm, I'm curious about this, because your journey has embraced an awful lot of things which are very idealistic and yet which which run up all the time against all kinds of uh, pressure from consensus thinking, from mainstream. How's that journey been for you to be involved in these ideas which a lot of people champion, But also a lot of people are kind of happy to see happening, but don't want it kind of thrown in their face. How's that journey been for you to kind of be challenging mainstream thinking the whole way through?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I've always been a, a bit of a heterodox thinker, um, and a champion of the underdog. Um, there is something I think unique to the psychological makeup of people, you know, who become, uh, self-described nuclear advocates. Um, you know, there's, it's almost conspiratorial in a sense, because you, you know, it, it, from an outside perspective, you know, if you abstract it, it's like, okay, here's these people that have access to this knowledge, um, you know, and nobody else seems to get it right like it feels like a conspiracy theory but it really is backed by you know the best science and evidence um so it's it's a strange it's a strange um place to occupy i mean i i got into nuclear energy Um, out of a concern about climate change around the time of the birth of my son, um, just doing the math on how old he'd be in 2100 and what the world might look like at that time. I read a book called six degrees, which kind of lays out, you know, what, what the world looks like according to the IPC science, you know, with each degree that we, we add in global average temperatures, he became very alarmed, became very doomy, became that guy at the party, you know, that would just, (laughs) you know, talk about how, how fucked we were. Um, but, uh, you know, evolved very quickly. I, you know, my, my, ex-wife at the time uh, she said you know why don't you start stop complaining about this stuff and and do something about it and she really meant like sort the recycling better take the compost out and uh you know i I guess i i gained a bit of a like, like empirical way of of thinking um, you know, grounded more in the scientific method, um, and, in you know, the assessment and appraisal of, of high quality evidence, which, you know, leads one as it does to, uh, to nuclear energy. If you're thinking seriously about, um, you know, transitioning from fossil fuels to a, you know, another energy source, it's gotta be thermodynamically viable. Um, it has to be as good or better, um, in, in a lot of ways, um, for it to have social and political license. So, you know, I, I arrived at what to me feels like a pretty obvious, um, place, um, and yeah, I mean, I, th- I think one in which I'm able to, to represent well, um, without, without kind of being, you know, like a, a preachy vegan, or I'm not sure if that was kind of the origin of your question. Like how, how do you like hold these heterodox opinions and spread them without, without being annoying at parties? But, but I, I think I'm walking the line.
1: So, um, we, we've arrived at similar conclusions, Chris, but perhaps through a different path function. I had a couple of questions I'd have for you, the early enchantment with sort of getting close to nature and the survivalist mindset, which is something I sympathize with. As you know, I'm a strong believer in in sort of local preparedness. I assume led you down the path of uh, renewable energy as the primary outlet. Uh, You've been critical of of some of the tactics and strategies in the renewable space, but also quite critical about natural gas in the U.S. and the negative impact that the natural gas, shale gas revolution has had on what you believe is the ultimate solution, which is the deployment uh, of nuclear energy. Can you talk us through sort of the the journey of your thinking on the topic, and and how your assessment of the science changed your conclusions as to what the best path would be.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was never um, a huge fan of of renewable energy. I remember um, on one of my rural medical electives, you um, know, Ontario went pretty gangbusters with something called the Green Energy Act where we're going to probably end up squandering a total of around $60 billion, um, adding a lot of wind and solar to an already ultra low carbon nuclear and hydro based grid. Um, But I remember driving through, you know, the countryside and seeing these windmills everywhere and aesthetically thinking, God, these things look awful, but you know, it's what we've got to do if we're serious about climate change, I'm just going to have to put up with not really liking seeing, you know, a beautiful landscape industrialized. Um, So that's obviously changed. I mean, in regards to, um, regards to natural gas, I mean, My, my, um, thoughts on this you know have become a lot more nuanced and complex you know i have to really stress here i'm a, I'm a medical doctor who's been obsessing over energy for only about 4 years now uh, you know i'm not an engineer i'm not i don't have a background in heavy industry and supply chains uh, which is something i so appreciate about talking with you Dunberg. um and so you know just looking at um the nuclear renaissance of the early, early 2000s you know when uh, we, were, we were seriously looking you know like we were hitting into a, a sort of supply um, peak oil situation. Um, you know whenever in, in my reading of of energy history, um, whenever fossil fuels become constrained or expensive, as they did in the OPEC crisis, or as they did with concerns about uh, peak oil, um, nuclear is back on the table. Because again, it is really the only thermodynamically um, feasible evolution in, in human energy use. And so I guess I just had a chip on my shoulder looking at the failure of that, of that nuclear renaissance in the 2000s, which is multifactorial. You know, it had to do with, um, you know, an obsession with new designs that we thought would solve all the problems or the supposed problems with, uh, you know, a legacy, uh, nuclear, um, as well as, you know, trying to build these complex designs that no one had experience with by a, you know, a completely atrophied, uh, nuclear construction force. Uh, you know, it's interesting how that's evolved more recently. Um, <clears throat> and honestly, that has a lot of, a lot to do with, uh, with your work, Doomburg and, and, and a few other energy thinkers here, Václav Smil is obviously a huge influence. You know, that whole idea that, listen, we live within a fossil fueled civilization, um, cement, steel, fertilizer, sort of underpin everything. We cannot take those things for granted and and certainly at present and into the foreseeable future. Um, these will be supplied, uh, by fossil fuels. We just don't have other, other processes in order to, to, to do those things, particularly at scale. Um, and so I have a more, I guess a more nuanced view, like I remain, uh, you know, a serious climate Hawk. I think it's a, a crime to burn natural gas as base load certainly i think there's a role uh, for peaking within electricity systems but you know as as you've pointed out and as others have pointed out um i think alex epstein says this you know like fossil fuels are the food of food um and you know in a setting where we're heading into a global fertilizer crisis the idea that we're burning that food of food um you know burning natural gas for base load when it's such a critical feedstock um for such an, an important number of of processes uh, including you know that one that is just so so uh true to our base needs and i think as, you know, fellow sort of prepper survivalist types, you know, you think about, you know, when you're in the woods, you know, with nothing but like a hatchet or something, it's all about, you know, food, shelter, you know, water and, and, and heat. Um, Anyway, so just, it's, it's a primal need. Um, And so I'd I'd say I've I've become a little more nuanced on that. And, you know, your, your take on, you know, the lack of pipeline infrastructure in New England and the perversity of importing LNG from Trinidad and Tobago, it's, it's changed my ideas a little bit on pipelines and things like that. So, you know, I remain a climate hawk. I think that, it's naive um, to think that we are going to phase off fossil fuels um, anytime soon. I think even with the best, you know, uh, nuclear led uh, consensus and industrial policy, net zero is a centuries project, not a decades project. Um, so, you know, I, I think my thinking has become a lot more complex on the matter, you know, as it tends to do as, as you climb the sort of Dunning-Kruger curve and, and get higher up the mountain, you realize just how, how bloody high the mountain is.
1: Isn't it pleasant that intelligent people can exchange ideas and sometimes slightly modify uh, the opinion and beliefs of the other? Such a rare thing in today's modern, hyper-toxic social media world. And uh, we could go on about um, how you've changed some of my thinking, too, around um, um, solar and, and so on. But I've actually got a couple of questions on nuclear that I'd love for you to address for our audience because it's really fascinating. One is the biggest sort of pushback that I think is a canard is the whole nuclear waste uh, fear-mongering. Maybe you could address uh, once and for all and, and put to bed what the sort of real issues are and, and how difficult they are to solve on that. And then perhaps after that, really exciting work going on, some of it in Canada around small modular nuclear reactors. Maybe you could give our listeners an update on what the progress is, what the excitement is all about, and how fast the technology uh, could be deployed and, and so on. So th- those two questions, take them in, in whatever order you'd like
2: Sure. Yeah, I mean the waste thing is is such an interesting bogeyman, and it's you know uh, I think in the words of Isabel Bemaki, the Brazilian fashion model turned nuclear influencer, it's a bad meme, right? It has really seized over popular consciousness. It, it's almost like you know, a, a cognitive cue that you stay nuclear and people immediately make that word association in their brain to waste. Um, you know, nuclear waste is probably one of the greatest strengths of the technology, to be honest, um, because of the extraordinary energy density of uranium, we use so little of the stuff in our power plants. Um, you know, the Canadian statistics are in the 70 years of civilian nuclear energy, the waste we produced would fit in one hockey rink, Canadian reference there, um, piled uh, about a telephone pole high or 32 feet high. So there's very little of it. It is completely contained. You know, uh, the folks at environmental progress under Michael Schellenberger spent a long time trying to comb the world's literature and news reports and find a single death as a result of stored civilian nuclear waste. They found none you know no one can find that case so up until now it's it's incredible i mean the stuff is hot it's dangerous when it comes out of the reactor but radiation is something we not, we understand very very well and we know how to shield it and you can walk around these spent fuel bays you could spend you know the whole year in there and your dose would be lower than many many places in the world and i mean of course there's no reason to spend a year camping out in a spent fuel bay um, but people obsessed about, you know, the, the long lived nature of it. Of course, you know, as you know, as a, as a chemist, um, heavy metals are, are the true forever waste. You could think about CO2 is essentially a, a, you know, a, certainly a long lasting waste in the atmosphere, which is changing atmospheric concentrations and, and has major implications for, um, you know, the livability of, of large sections of the planet. But, you know, to cut to the chase, you know, one of the long-term solutions is uh deep geologic repository. So putting the stuff underground, you know, in suitable rock forming, sometimes up to a, uh, you know, half a kilometer underground. Now the industry itself is its own worst enemy here because fundamentally the rock is the barrier, you know, and we have examples like the waste isolation pilot project in Carlsbad, New Mexico, where you have this beautiful salt formation where, you know, it takes water like a billion years to move a, a meter through this formation. So really you can just put the waste, you know, in its existing containers, straight into this setting in ontario you know it's, it's the geology is not quite as favorable it takes a million years for water to move a meter and the reason i'm saying water moving a meter is the mechanism for nuclear waste to get out into the biosphere and hurt anybody is that water needs to get inside of this repository get through all of these um, engineered barriers like the bentonite clay the copper canisters that are corrosion resistant particularly in an anaerobic environment the steel the zirconium uh, lining on the fuel and then dissolve a ceramic pellet Again, in an anoxic environment, the, the electrochemistry of that doesn't work well. And then if it were to succeed, it would need to dissolve the ceramic and carry these dangerous radioisotopes in solution through rock. You know, the isotopes are avidly binding everything around them. Never mind that. But it takes a million years. For those radioisotopes in solution to move through the rock, by that time they're inert essentially. They're heavy metals because it's uranium, right? But even after a thousand years, um, the only way for that nuclear waste to harm a human is is to eat it because you know radiation is made up of gammas and alphas and betas. Um, I don't want to get too too deep into this and too nerding out, but you know, after a thousand years, you need to eat it and you need to find a mechanism logistics to get that waste into human bodies or into water tables. And it's just not there. So, you know, I know I've given you a bit more of a technical deep dive on the waste than I would if I was just, you know, talking to the general public about this. Um, and that is a flaw when you start nerding out on this, sometimes you get a little too technical, but I mean, the, the, the key messages is, is that you know, people worry about waste because they think on civilizational timescales, shit, if we have to store this stuff for like 10,000 years, there's been no human civilization that's endured that long. We're putting it in geology. So we need to think about geologic timescales. You know, in Ontario, the rock we're looking at is 300 million years old. You know, we can characterize it very well. Geologists are really smart. Right, We spend a lot of time drilling cores and analyzing rock. We know a lot. You know, we know about the existence of the dinosaurs because of geologists. We can date things very well, et cetera. Um, And so, yeah, fundamentally, the rock is the barrier. This is a solved problem. We solved it at WIP, at the Waste Isolation Pilot Project, which is for weapons waste, which is liquid and harder to store. So it's absolutely solved and solvable for for power plant waste. There's not much of it. The rock's the barrier. That was a bit of a a long answer. Um, But getting on to your your SMRs question, you know, um, I tend to actually be a bit of a skeptic on SMRs um i think they're they're absolutely necessary i think that they you know small modular reactors particularly in in you know uh, centers where there's smaller grids certainly mining um off-grid applications it's it's very important and and for countries that just have small grids you don't want to install a power plant that's more than 10 percent of the uh the, the grid demand otherwise if it goes offline it could lead to some instability so there's definitely a role for them um, you know, as a climate hawk, um, when you look at you know this electrification project where you're trying to electrify large sections of the economy that are currently fossil fueled, you see that it's it's absolutely insane the, the the scale of infrastructure that needs to be built. So there's lots and lots of room for building big stuff, um, and and a lot of the appeal of of SMRs is because we only have sort of social and political license in the West for the things that seem not like the other girls, not like that that legacy nuclear, right? All that aside, you know, the SMRs are important and Canada is particularly relevant because we're a first mover in the West on this. You know, the Chinese have already done it. Obviously, I mean, the U.S. military has done it, you know, all aircraft carriers and nuclear submarines, etc. But in terms of a you know commercial, uh, you know, grid connected power plant, we're the first movers on it. We expect to have it built and hopefully grid connected by the end of the decade. Um, and we hope to capture a bit of that supply chain because there's big interest um, in Europe in particular um, for, for building out the same model. Um, so, you know, I think it's, uh, it's certainly a, a strength for Canada. And I'm happy to sort of talk about why I think Canada is so relevant in the West um, when it comes to nuclear and why, you know, we, I think, hold a lot of hope if, if, if we can shift the politics and really get our government to be enthusiastic about nuclear.
0: Chris, I'm going to leave the science to our green friend because he's the scientist, so it would be foolish of me not to do that. But I'm, I'm really curious about you know, the that, that whole description you gave us about how this problem is solved. You know, I'm, I'm very open-minded about all this stuff, and, I, and I'm happy to talk to people that talk about climate change on one side. I'm happy to listen to people who have differing views. You know, I've, I, I had a couple of podcasts not that long ago where two guys talked within an investment context, i.e. everybody's on one side of the boat, I've done my research, and I see that we could be going into a global cooling cycle, and therefore, here's what I think it might do to commodities. And the blowback from just those comments was extraordinary to me. You know, a very sane, remarkably tolerant audience who are just curious truth seekers, completely unwilling to even listen to the rest of those conversations, because 30 seconds out of an hour, someone said, "You know, I've done some reading, and I think this might be a potential problem. And if that happens, here's what I think will happen to corn yields. And so the whole discussion I find very interesting to me. And when you talked about this problem being solved, what you've just laid out there in terms of rock permeability and what would have to happen for this thing to be a problem, remarkably clear cut to anybody listening to this without a knowledge of the fundamental science behind it. And so I wonder why it seems so difficult. And yes, we can all point to Fukushima, we can go back to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and we can look at the carnage that nuclear can cause. But when you talk about it like that, it seems remarkable to me that nuclear energy is such a problematic discussion for leaders to say, listen, this is the science. Here we are. This is our, by far, our simplest, most straightforward green solution. We are going to do this. And this is the right thing to do. Why is that so difficult, do you think?
2: I say two things, um, you know, and and I know I was born in 1982. The uh, Soviet Union collapsed, you know, within my, my living memory. But you know, my dad uh, did duck and cover exercises. Was around during the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, and and I've I've done a little bit of of uh, reading. There's a great book by a guy named Spencer Wirt um, called "The Rise of Nuclear Fear." But I mean, you know, even back in the 50s, they were putting small towns in the U.S. through drills, right? Time drills of you know get into basements, get into your bomb shelters. Okay. How did everybody do? Okay. You didn't do very well this time. You know, 70% of your town died. Right. I mean, these were absolutely terrifying times. And, you know, I think it's, it's a common thing throughout human history. Every generation has their apocalyptic vision of, of, you know, what that might be. It might've been more religious at certain points. Certainly we had very good reason during some of the tensions and flare-ups within the cold war, um, that that could be a nuclear weapons thing. And it's very hard to disentangle, the sword versus the plowshare when it comes to nuclear. Um, again, given that the technology began, um, you know, its first exposition was, you know, in a military application with, with a bombing that was, uh, you know, dreadful. Right. So, um, that's, that's a, a major hangup. And I thing to push back, it's very interesting looking at, you know, the early atoms for peace initiatives, our friend, the Adam, uh, you know, Walt Disney production, um, you know, Walt Disney was a huge pro nuclear energy guy. Um, and there was, um, Interestingly enough, I mean, so much hope about it. And, and I mean, you know, what's what's, um, you know, the the use of radiation for you know mutagenesis to create new crop varieties for, um, you know, medicine. It's extraordinary. Um, you know what the technology in terms of, again, the sort of plowshares side of it has to offer humanity. And it's, you know, it's definitely saved orders of magnitude more lives than it's cost, even if you factor in um, those bombings. But but, you know, the weapons thing is a is a huge hang up um and you know are you know those weapons still exist i mean putin was sort of testing the readiness of his nuclear uh, arsenal prior to uh, the invasion of ukraine that was a little bit of a reminder you know again i think what earlier generations lived under the fear of i think the second reason there's so much of a hang-up is that we have especially in the us and probably europe as well but in the us in particular a very well-financed group of anti-nuclear NGOs. Um, You know, Michael Schellenberg has done a good analysis of this, but, you know, the combined annual operating budget of the big four environmental groups that take a strong position on nuclear energy, so, you know, National Resource Defense Council, uh, Sierra Club, um, Friends of the Earth, et cetera, is a billion dollars. Right. Um, and these folks take every opportunity they can to oppose nuclear energy, and they're sort of, I don't want to use conspiratorial words like infiltrated, but they're integrated um within you know the US intelligentsia, whether that's within the sort of nonprofit industrial complex, whether that's you know, within the the White House itself. I mean, Biden's climate advisor is a former NRDC chairperson. I believe I haven't had a chance to look at this in detail yet, but one of the new NRC chair people is former NRDC affiliated. Um, so they have a outsized impact. Um, in policy discussions and in in cultural discussions. Um, And that is what I think is interesting when I make comparisons um, between the U.S. and Canada and our mutual prospects of of a nuclear renaissance. Um, and it's, you know, it's this kind of, maybe it's going to expose some of my, my lefty roots here, but it's a very interesting phenomenon in the States, you know, as a tax shelter, um, wealthy Americans, rather than paying tax are able to divert some of that income, um, towards, you know, foundations towards charities. Um, and, you know, it's, I think a very libertarian impulse of like, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to fund some of the bullshit my government's up to. I'd like to fund these ideas that I hold dear. I'm sympathetic to it in a sense. Uh, but the 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 blowback of that is, is that you have um, very well financed environmental NGOs whose you know aims might be environmental, but are Malthusian to the roots. And in fact, the outcomes of, of their activism are, are anti environmentalist. I mean, just look at the closure of Indian Point that was championed by the National Resource Defense Council and celebrities like Mark Ruffalo. You know, there's been a massive increase in fossil fuel burning after the closure of that plant. So, I mean, those are, I mean, there's many more reasons than that, but I'd say weapons and, um, you know, the, the incredibly powerful environmental organizations, um, are, are, you know, have a huge role to play in this. And particularly with the propagation, again, of what I'm calling and what Isabel Bemke calls the bad meme, right? Of nuclear waste, bad or nuclear dangerous or bad. These are, these are widespread um, cultural memes that, that are, you know, kind of default positions. And, you know, Bloomberg asked me earlier, like, what were your ideas about renewable energy when you were young? They were a little bit undefined and I didn't like the aesthetic, but, but I thought, okay, it's a sacrifice we have to make in terms of nuclear. I mean, I was, I was terrified of nuclear. I grew up in Ontario where 61% nuclear, um, one of our plants is you know pretty urban it's about 30 kilometers away from where i'm sitting right now and when i used to drive by the plants on one of our big highways i used to hold my breath which is just hilarious because this plant produces no air emissions and it you know it's a four gigawatt nuclear plant it was supposed to be a four gigawatt coal plant um and just i mean you know as a physician who's looked into you know issues of air pollution um, you know, it's just it's just it's a funny irony. But you know, there we have it. The bad meme, um, you know, is part of my sort of tribal identity as a kind of lefty environmentalist, you know, uh, activist. Um, and uh, it's going to be tough to sort of uh, shift that meme. Um, but I do I do see it happening. And I'm hopeful.
1: One of the things I really admire about your work, Chris, is your willingness to dive into the trenches uh, personally and to deploy time and and resources towards causes that you're passionate about. And um, one of the things that I noticed and one of the reasons why we had to reschedule the original recording of this podcast is you were invited by some politicians in Canada to testify before some committees. Maybe you could fill in the audience what that was, how that came about, and what that experience was like. Because, you know, it's one thing to tweet about issues on Twitter or even to write about them on Substack or to talk about them on a podcast, but it's a whole thing altogether to be invited by people that have the authority and the power to do something about it, to be able to express your opinions on the subject.
2: Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, the path towards making this, this testimony is sort of like the pinnacle of my advocacy so far. There's going to be more heights to come, I'm sure. But you know, I started doing nuclear advocacy in 2019, um, set up some tables in our, our main square here in Toronto and, you know, talked to mostly kind of homeless people and passersby, right? And three years later, I was shaking the hands of cabinet ministers, um, discussing nuclear energy with them, uh, presenting to uh, both the caucuses of of the main, uh, main political parties here in Canada. And I was invited um, by uh, one of the conservative members um, to, I uh, was nominated, I guess, to provide uh, testimony at a um, standing house. House of Commons Committee on creating a fair and equitable uh, energy transformation. I mean, we hear the buzzword just transition, and I think that's the kind of easier way to put it, but they're looking at or supposedly looking at this question of if we're going to be transitioning fossil fuel workers onto something else into a clean energy economy, how can we make that just? And there's a a lot of PR and fluff in this game, right? There's a lot of pictures of actors with hard hats on smiling in front of solar panels and wind turbines. And there's very little substance uh, in this debate. Um, And so I thought I'd bring some substance and, you know, I do have a real history, you know, within the left and within labor, I guess. Um, I was on my first picket line. I was dragged out there when I was like 12 years old. So I've been kind of immersed in that culture um but fundamentally this question of you know a just transition there's there's huge skepticism amongst the labor movement and amongst fossil fuel workers because you know they i think they see through the pr bullshit, frankly of this just transition language they see that it's being written by you know academics li- living off of soft money and you know in universities um with no uh, experience no um engineering discipline no understanding of you know supply chain or of energy production and they see that a wind and solar farm is a workerless facility. There's no jobs there once it's been slapped up, um, and I think they also see that the wages paid in these jobs are are probably 50 percent of what they're currently earning. And fundamentally, a just transition should, I mean, at its base roots, if you're really appealing to working people and trying to convince them that they should do an energy transition, they should not be seeing any pay cut and certainly not a 50% pay cut, right? But these are the kind of delusions under which the fantasy left um, can sort of talk about this. So my my testimony in short, looked at, you know, look at the lens of just transition through supply chains, jobs and negotiating power. And just to summarize very quickly, you know, we face a very stark set of decisions if we're going to do an energy transition based on wind and solar or based on um on nuclear and those really are our only scalable options because hydro is is quite tapped out we've done the best rivers and it's shown to be extremely vulnerable to climate change just look at you know what's happening in the columbia river in the states for instance um so you know we're left with potentially scalable options wind solar nuclear I was talking within the Canadian environment, this may be slightly different than the US, although I don't think so. You know, 96% of um, the the nuclear supply chain is right here in Canada, from the mines to the fuel fabrication, uh, to the heavy industry operations, maintenance, um, spent fuel handling, we capture all of that value. If we're talking about the scale of of energy production required to meet net net zero goals, we're talking like doubling or tripling our grid, we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars of investment. So do we invest that, you know, here in Canada, in the sector which is very jobs rich and not just annual jobs. I mean, six figure salaries for tradespeople kind of jobs where the money they spend bounces around their communities and generates, you know, what's called the economic multiplier factor of 1.4. So you invest a dollar in can do nuclear in our Canadian nuclear technology, you get a buck 40 out, right? Um, and I examined the solar supply chain, which is almost exclusively um, in South Asia, mostly in China. And I mean, if we want to talk about justice for workers, you know, 40 percent of the world's polysilicon is made in, in Western China and in Xinjiang, where um, there's credible allegations of forced labor in that supply chain. Um, but, you know, more importantly, is Canada going to spend hundreds of billions of dollars generating a trade deficit, you know, investing that money in the stimulating the economy of an authoritarian nation? That's basically a geopolitical rival. Um, and reduce ourselves to a nation of solar panel installers, again, making maybe if they're lucky, half the half the wage of a fossil fuel worker, right? So it's just not going to happen. You know, I think that the job differences are obvious, but this, this other fundamental question of, you know, what are the negotiating power of workers in the wind and solar industry versus the nuclear sector? I think that's a very interesting one and one that's kind of ironically lost on these kind of left wing professional managerial class people thinking about a just transition. Because you know, the history of labor is not that, you know, capitalists and the bosses were like, you know what guys, you know, have a wage increase. We wanna improve your working conditions. No, I mean, working people fought for that. You know, they they struck for that, et cetera. And so, you know, building a wind and solar facility, there's jobs in the construction phase. They're temporary, they're low skilled, they're easily replaced by scab labor, you know, and they're not fixed and attached to a local community. I kind of call them the carny jobs, like the carnival workers, right? You go from one installation to the next. And once built, they're workerless facilities. There's no workers there to say, hey, we'd like higher wages, please. Within the nuclear sector, you know, our nuclear plants are big. I mean, we we build uh sets of eight reactors at a time at a couple of our sites here. So the parking lots, you know, have two or three thousand spots in them. And and it's just precisely the opposite. You have highly skilled workers, difficult to replace with scab labor, who can actually negotiate and negotiate good wages and good working conditions. So, you know, that was that was sort of the the summary of, of my testimony. Um, It was um, interesting because I received zero questions related to labor or, you know, justice around workers or fossil fuel workers and what their future would look like in a a clean energy system. And I actually was uh, vigorously attacked by um, the uh, the leftist uh, party that was there on issues, again, of waste and proliferation. So it was it was the testimony was very interesting, but. As you're saying, you know, it's it's been great um, being able to be on the advocacy side to have the podcast and then, you know, through the social capital, really, that comes with the podcast um, that circuitously leading to an invite to uh, to testify um, you know, before the House of Commons. I was I was really honored to do that. And I look I look forward to, to more of that kind of advocacy, because I think I think with a like we're on a teeter totter here and with enough pressure on our side, it's not going to take much. I, I think we're you know, these arguments are really quite bulletproof. And, you know, politicians um, are going to have to realize, again, the stark choice. I mean, do you want to bankrupt your country, essentially, and, ha- and generate massive trade deficits, or do you want to stimulate your economy? And again, it's not going to be climate change imperatives that decide this. Um, it's going to be economic ones, and it's going to be geopolitical ones. You know, as we've seen, the Russian aggression in Ukraine has really brought some maturity to energy conversations recently.
0: You know, Chris, I think giving politicians the opportunity to bankrupt or not bankrupt their country, that that day has long passed us, unfortunately. They've chosen that path already. I I think they've already taken that that route already, and they're long down that path. But um, let me ask you what what you think it would take, because we've reached a point now with what's happening with energy prices, where you can see at the fringes that politicians everywhere are desperate to try and find a way now to reverse a lot of the kind of smack talking that they've been throwing down about nuclear because they realize it is a solution to a problem that is likely to get them unelected, right? Which is clearly the only thing they really are absolutely focused upon. You know, my friend Josh Wolf recently talked about rebranding nuclear as elemental energy and how easy it would be once you did that and told the story in a different way, how easy a story it was. And he went through the story to to explain to people what this actually is, what the advantages it can bring. And and I just feel when I look around the political world, and I look at some of the steps back that people are taking from really hardcore positions, you can see that they're they're thinking to themselves, oh boy, how do we walk this back and get the public on side to accept nuclear energy? What do you think it would take to be able to achieve that and, you know, you start planning new reactors, start opening new reactors like they're doing in India and China and Korea and Pakistan. And, you know, there are dozens of of nuclear reactors in construction at the moment. Yeah.
2: I mean, I I think this elemental energy and rebranding thing is, is, uh, is interesting. I remember reading a a great book by I think Jonathan Goldstein and he he just started off talking about this miraculously miraculous energy form where, you know, a truckload of fuel runs this, Enormous plan, et cetera. I mean, and he used the the, the Swedish word Cairncraft and it just sounds so nice. It sounds like a bunch of you know Scandinavians doing arts and crafts or something. or, um, and then of or reveals, something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he reveals that it's nuclear. I mean, I think those are those are nice ideas and thought experiments, but not kind of fully thought out and, and mature enough in terms of having this broader conversation. I mean, listen. I think the reality is social license is important to a degree. Um, but these pragmatic questions are ultimately going to win the day. Um, you know, it's it's not that in the UK there was a massive change in sort of societal consensus on nuclear that led from them sort of humming and hawing about whether they do size well, see their second big EPR build. Um, and then jumping to saying, Hey, shit, we're going to need to do eight of these, you know, one every year, essentially, instead of one, every decade, it was the imperatives of, you know, the energy crisis and the Russian aggression in Ukraine and the commitment by the EU. I mean, Brexit, notwithstanding to get off, uh, Russian fossil fuels within five years. Um, you know, these are the imperatives. I mean, look at Japan a nation that experienced the, uh, the atomic bombings, Um, You know, why did they embrace nuclear energy so much? It's because they're an island nation with limited fossil fuel resources. I mean, why did they even enter into World War II? It's because they had 90 percent of their uh, oil and gas cut off. Um, It's it's these kind of pragmatic imperatives that are going to lead to the, the policy turnaround. And I think there's such a temptation, you know, and I fell prey to this early on as well in my early days of nuclear advocacy to argue with the people that yell back the loudest at you. Um, and in many senses, that can become an enormous waste of time and effort. I quickly decided, no, I want to actually you know, make political change happen. I need to start talking to media and politicians. And that's really been the focus of my work. But there, there's a trap there to, to arguing with fringe environmentalists who really wield no political power and you just consume your energy. Um, You know, again, I I don't want to minimize the political power that the environmental NGOs have in the states because, again, you're talking about a billion dollar operating budget uh, for these groups in in a combined sense. And I'm probably underestimating. Um, But, you know, I I think people think too often when it's like we need to get social license for nuclear energy, they think, well, I need to convince this fringe, you know, Frankly, you know, Malthusian, anti-environmentalist extremists whose opinions are never going to change. That's not whose opi- whose opinions and who we need to change. We need to change the political center, right? Um, we need to we need to convince the voter. Um, and you know, again, I, I'm not as intimately familiar with the U.S., but I think around the world that that's an, an easier matter to do. And it's not even that you need to convince every voter. I mean again just the 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 way in which you know w- w- there wasn't a societal consensus shift in the uk that went from them going mm, maybe one oh shit we're going to build eight of these things um so so i think uh i think it's definitely important to to work on building that social license to sh- to shifting the culture um but not, not entirely necessary. And I will say one more thing that that's been interesting to witness, certainly within the Canadian media environment in the early two thousands, whenever you had a uh, climate expert coming on, talking about climate change, you know, the media always brought a climate denier on alongside um, in order to provide a sort of fair and balanced perspective. Um, What I've noticed in the last year um, within the Canadian media and to some degree internationally um, is that, you know, it used to be that every time you brought on a pro-nuclear speaker, they were drowned out by a mob of you know two or three anti-nuclear guests. They're not doing that anymore. And I think this anti-nuclear position has just revealed itself as being, you know, so utterly bankrupt and and hypocritical. Because again, every time a nuclear plant is not built or a nuclear plant is closed, uh, fossil fuels are burned instead. And and I think that's starting to, to percolate through. Um, so I hope that answers your question, Grant. But I, I, I'm quite hopeful for, for the way things are turning, both in terms of social license, in terms of the population, getting educated. And again, it's, it's just it is the only thermodynamically viable route. We've had 10 years of some of the cheapest energy and, and capital in terms of low interest rates in the history of humanity. Um, and it's been uh, you know a cushy, soft time. Um, to talk about a soft energy path, to talk about things like wind and solar and build a lot of them. Um, but when the rubber meets the road um i think you know the transition to nuclear is inevitable you know either we keep burning a lot of fossil fuels which is i guess hypothetically possible but if, if we do want to take climate seriously um we do need to we do need to start looking at what are the thermodynamically available options uh, viable options and, and nuclear is you know it's it you know
1: yeah i just uh inject all that right into my veins <laughs> chris it's a really really fantastic articulation of something we've tried to advocate for which is you know physics versus platitudes and who ultimately wins. Um, driving 60 miles an hour into the hard wall of physics is not advisable. Yeah. Um, but that uh, leaves us, you know, obviously we could talk to you all day, but um, I do want to sort of talk about your content creation side of your advocacy work and really fantastic podcast that you've uh, created and, and have put out many, many brilliant episodes um, Decouple. Why don't you walk us through the genesis of that idea and um, how that podcast has grown? There's been some fin- fantastic guests on that show. And walk us through a decision to start that and how it's going.
2: Yeah, I mean, so again, around the around the time of the birth of my son, I started thinking about these questions seriously and pushing a, a baby carriage and, you know, a book in one hand. I did a lot of reading. Um, I was uh, I did college radio, um, you know, in, in my 20s, and I just found it to be this uniquely interesting medium where I could read a book and actually convinced the author to sit down and spend an hour with me. And I, I just, I love spending time with brilliant, intelligent people. Um, and here you have this, this medium and this mechanism, um, you know, and, and also, I mean, it's, it's, you know, we talked a lot about, uh, you, you mentioned the kind of hyper-polarization of our, of our media environment. I mean, Twitter as an amazing tool as it is to, to make these kind of worldwide connections and the media connections and, you know, just, just the way you can be exposed to some very organic thought. It is a utterly toxic, um, you know, platform uh, in terms of the quality of discourse um, and, and podcasting offers the real antidote to that. You know, this kind of intimate hour long experience where you can really suss out the, the value values, you know, the, the, almost the body language of, you know, as it were of a remote communication. Um, And and so it's been a medium that's been fascinating to me. Um, And yeah, I mean, I I wanted to explore these questions in more depth. Um, You know, I I wasn't inspired by the contents of uh, another podcast called my climate journey, but um, I was, I, I did like that idea of kind of, um, you know that form of a hero's journey i guess through just through through education through this topic and and as, as i was mentioning to you in terms of some of my evolving thoughts um and the complexity of my thoughts on on you know the role of fossil fuels for instance you know that that's been part of this journey um we've done uh, i think we're at 136 episodes um you know i've i've become completely an obsessive on this um and it's it's intertwined really nicely with, with the advocacy efforts, um, that I've engaged with. Um, we took the show on the road to cop 26, um, and had some very interesting interviews there. Um, I had a bit of a, uh, <laughs> one of my funnest interviews was, um, interviewing the head of the German delegation there. And, um, We'd actually gone to uh, something called the New York Climate Hub the day before, which is kind of a conference outside of a conference. The New York Times runs this huge building, renovates it and does a lot of their media work from outside the conference. And we'd gone there and you're given a pass that says New York Times on it. And so I, I managed to convince the German delegation that I, you know, was associated with the New York Times Climate Hub and uh, and got an interview with this guy. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was just uh, very, very interesting being able to you know, give this guy the rope to hang himself with in terms of describing his country's, you know, just bizarre suicidal, um, energy path. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, again, I, I'm not sure, sure too much more what to say uh, on this topic. Um, decouple it's, it's both sort of journalistic. It's both sort of that, that journey of, 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 you know, educating oneself, but we're growing it into um, you know, a more multimedia platform. We now have uh, Decouple Studios, uh, where my, one of my best friends um, and very talented uh, filmmaker and videographer is putting out um, kind of 10 minute length content that's a little more public facing. The podcast is very wonkish, obviously. Um, I was not interested in, in dumbing it down to make it accessible to a broader audience. I'm not chasing a huge audience. I, I wanna talk to and really develop almost like a low budget think tank. Where this kind of an eco-modernist thought world, I can I can influence it. I can bring a bit of an editorial line to it. Um, that's certainly been a role of it. But creating that mid-length content, and now we're bringing onboarding someone who's going to be doing uh, more sort of TikTok work, um, and developing sort of a the case for nuclear, or sort of talking points. And that's a bit derivative of Alex Epstein's excellent work in terms of you know his uh, his energy talking points. So we're we're creating I guess a multimedia platform that can both pull on audiences that are that are specific to mediums like TikTok with a you know younger audience and um you know that's um that's uh, a member of the team is is a woman and uh well i think really help with the female audience it's funny as a male content creator um i was i was talking with some women about like you know how do you build your female audience and they're like you need a female content creator it doesn't matter how many women you invite on like ultimately that's what you need so you know, in summary, you know, exciting to have sort of a, an emerging TikTok component and hopefully bringing in, you know, a more female and younger, hipper audience, having the YouTube channel to sort of, you know, you can steer people from those one minute TikTok videos of like, huh, nuclear, I hadn't thought about it that way to a little more in depth, um, with, with the YouTube content. And then, you know, for the real diehards, they can come on and join the, uh, the podcast audience. Um, so again, both sort of journalistic, um, and, and, and advocacy really intertwined together, um, creating resources and, and developing a sort of ultra low budget think tank. Um, I guess that's, that's the overall, you know, vision for, uh, for decouple media.
0: So, so Chris, before we go and we close with, uh, all the places that people can find you, I want to make that kind of discreet on its own at the end, but perhaps you, you spoke a little bit about that book, the rise of nuclear fear for people out there who are, you know, kind of starting to, to become curious about nuclear past all the fear and past all the 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 past stories that have kind of kept it um out of the limelight where should people go to really try and start to get an understanding of the reality of this versus the fear-mongering you you mentioned one book are there any other great resources that you think will will set people down that path to becoming more educated about the subject
2: Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a number of great books and I'll I'll just give those to you to throw in the show notes, but I mean, here, I'm really just going to pitch decouple media because we're creating those resources and we do have resources that are applicable to sort of the casually curious, um, in terms of, uh, Jesse Freeston's great content with, uh, decouple studios. Um, you know, got, got some great, uh, content, particularly looking at some contemporary stuff. Like if people are worried about the, uh, the Russian occupation of the Ukrainian plants, you know, what about, you know, this issue of, of nuclear in a time, nuclear energy in a time of war. Um, a number of resources there. We're working on a reply video to the most recent Three Mile Island um uh a special on on Netflix. So things that you know will will be, you know, to your audience, if they're interested in learning more, won't just be okay, boring old why nuclear, why this, why that, but tied into sort of, you know, like cultural things that are happening yeah. now, I think yeah. makes it a lot more interesting um you know and again um the podcast itself you know if you don't want to read spencer's book it is massive um i interviewed him so so come have a listen over at a uh, decouple media but I'll, I'll definitely i can give you a few books if people are more into kind of uh reading um,
0: well let's well let's i tell you what why don't we why don't we point them to you and they can get the the, the books from you so give everybody twitter handles and websites and all the good stuff where they can come and find you because it, it's it's such a fascinating subject and and You just know it's going to be a subject that is going to be taking up more and more space in our heads in the coming months. There's there's no two ways about it. So give us all the places people can find you and get better educated about the subject.
2: Absolutely. So, I mean, the main place would be um, at doctor underscore Kiefer um, and Kiefer spelled K-E-E-F as in France, E-R. My DMs are open. Um, I uh, read them all. I can't reply to everything, but I will make a, a strong effort to do that. And that's the easiest way to get in touch with me. Um, decouple podcast um, at decouple podcast or at decouple media is, is um, uh, another Twitter handle to follow. That's that's with the podcast. Um, I'm the president of Canadians for nuclear energy. Um, So that's uh, www.c the numeral for um, N E dot C A. Um, that's another place to find me. Um, you know, I've, I found a whole bunch of organizations. It'll be boring to list them all really just come to my Twitter handle. Um, that's kind of where I spend most of my time in terms of social media um, and engagement. So again, that's at Dr. Kiefer K e e f is in France, E R.
0: Now, is Dr. D.R. or spelled doctor? I just want to double check to say. No, yeah, yeah, first. it's it's, uh, it's D R D R. Okay, yeah. fantastic. Chris, look, um, thank you so much for doing this. It's such a fascinating subject. And as I say, it's something that Doomberg, like you, has, has educated me a lot about. I was very open to the idea. I've been thinking it for quite some time now. But the more I understand about it, the more I realize it's the obvious solution. And so the more people understand it, I think um, I think the better the world will be. So thank you so much for taking this time to, to talk with us today.
2: You're very welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's really an honor to be here.
0: Thanks, doctor. You know, Dumi, uh Chris was just fantastic. And, uh, you know, you, you and I have been talking about this for quite some time and, and you've been such a passionate advocate for, for his work. And it's kind of been contagious, but actually getting the chance to talk to him in person. Man, he's an impressive young man, isn't he? I mean, how how
1: smart was how smart was he? Yeah, uh, you know it's ironic because we had scheduled this earlier, as as we mentioned on the on the main part of the interview, and the the reason we had to postpone his interview was because he was called to testify in the House of Commons in Canada, and so I, I suspect he is the first guest in the grand sort of all the podcasts that you've ever done, uh, who is both a medical doctor and testified before a G seven Parliament.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. You're probably right, but it's funny. It's it's such a it's such a tricky subject, um, and yet at the same time, it's such a straightforward subject. And that's always been my problem with this thing, is that is that why is something that's so straightforward such a tricky thing to talk about? Why are people's minds so closed when they're happy to accept how every other piece of technology in their lives is so much better than it was back in the day, and yet this one is something that people just have this massive blinkers on and just can't even entertain the idea that nuclear energy might be the solution that it clearly is.
1: And, you know, if there's one thing our listeners take away from this podcast,
0: and I want to reemphasize what Dr. Kiefer
1: said during the interview, it's the total canard that is the nuclear waste fear-mongering that has probably been the most effective meme, as he described it, that has stunted the development and, and proliferation of clean, safe, carbon-free nuclear energy, which is truly the most viable alternative to the worst aspects of our fossil fuel economy, and there is no path to net zero that doesn't involve a renaissance uh, within nuclear, and if we're dumb enough to allow the canard-type arguments of nuclear waste to shape public opinion, then shame on us.
0: Well, here, here, And uh, hearing a chicken talk about canard is always entertaining, I have to say. Um, <laughs> anyway, listen, Doomy, it's been fun as always. Before we go, let's just remind people where they can follow you and your newly minted Substack.
1: Yes, you bet. Doomberg.substack.com, And then you can follow on Twitter at DoombergT, And uh, also Grant-Williams.com for my humble co-host who who doesn't take enough of each opportunity to um, to uh, <laughs> brag about his work. Although, of course, by definition, if people are listening to this, then they're already subscribers. So I guess uh, you, get, you get a pass on this one.
0: You're going to end up fricasseed, my friend. Listen, it's always fun. Thanks for taking the time to do this. And uh, what do you say we do again uh, sometime soon? Can't wait.